This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. This podcast is a member of the Voices of Wrestling Podcasting Network. Visit voicesofwrestling.com to hear the rest of our great podcasts as well as show reviews, columns, opinions, and updates across the world of wrestling. To the highway in a brand new day. Gotta let it go. Welcome back to Open the Voice Gate, Rewind and Rewatch, episode 40, covering Heat 2013 from the Pappy Pineda Dome in Huntington Park, California on January 27th, 2013. We are members of the Voices of Wrestling Podcast Network. You can find us on the Voices of Wrestling feed, or you can find us on the Open the Voice Gate feed on all podcast platforms and applications. You can find us on Twitter at Open Voice Gate. If you'd like to donate to the show, just click the link in the show notes. It'll take you to our redcircle.com website. Just click the sponsor of this podcast button, and you can do a one-time or recurring donation. No obligation whatsoever, but a special thank you to all of our previous donors. I'm one of your hosts. It's your old pal, Iron Mike Spears, joined as always by my good friend, Case Lowe. And Case, this is a show that, as we were, as I just marked us in for time, we, we just said, and I just want to revisit this, that was on 1 p.m. Pacific Standard Time on a Sunday, and boy, there was not a lot of heat to this, especially 2013 heat. You know about the 2013 Miami heat at that time? (laughs) Yes, this was was the crumbling of a dynasty. This was not exactly the 2013 heat. This was the 2013 Cavaliers, if anything. This is an interesting show in Drangit USA history, and the fact that it exists is the interesting part because I think if you asked most people what your favorite Heat 2013 match is, they would stare at you blankly because I, I get the feeling, judging from the attendance, judging from the fact that even, you know, we're about to hit shows that have some lore to them. And I think even Johnny Gargano, or sorry, not Gargano, but John Morrison versus Akira Tozawa from earlier in this triple shot, that's a match that people at least know happened. I don't think there's a lot of... I think this is going to be the only podcast within the next 10 years that is doing an episode on Heat 2013. I, I'm willing to bet that there's people who are on this card that forgot about the match they had. Like, I'm just like up and down it. Like, it's, it's, it, I, I bet you go up to Sumi Yokosuka and you go, Sammy Callahan singles 2013, California. He probably would look at you with a complete blink look on his face. Uh, 
Samurai Del Sol maybe remembers wrestling Ryo Saito, but I'm guaranteed. Ooh, that's like, a night I'd like to forget if I was Samurai Del Sol. <laughs> oh, boy. That's, that, that's uh, fair. It's, that's it's fair. funny you mentioned Susumu Yokosuka because I'm looking at the card going like, I, I would be patting myself on the back if I were him. It's that Saito Del Sol match that I'd be trying to forget if I was one of the participants in that match. Yeah, yeah. So this will be the last of Dragon Gate USA's triple shots. Everything here on out, they do either a Friday, Saturday, or Saturday, Sunday recording so this is it for triple shots this is it for the way that we staggered our news one go- going forward we'll be floating around a little bit more between what we need to do to get caught to that show and then if there's certain events that play right into the show at least in dragon gate canon we'll cover it for that show but if there's bigger things we'll just find places to put them in here but case for this one last time it was really busy on the indies in the greater wrestling world in the beginning of 2013 wasn't it it was indeed. It is a real changing of eras. I mean, we are looking at kind of a definitive demarcation point in the way that the wrestling industry works, given this PWG show we're about to talk about. And like Mike said, we're going to be talking about the indies in a very little bit of New Japan and a mystery topic at the end that I that I have for Mike, just because I actually... It's not specifically wrestling, but I do think it really matters in the context of the wrestling industry. We'll be talking about the indies this week and the next week as we hit WrestleMania weekend, open the Ultimate Gate 2013. We are going to be talking about the indies that week as well. So you get back-to-back updates on the world of independent wrestling in 2013. And to get the scope of what's going on, we have to start in Reseda, California, and we have to start with DDT4 2013. The tournament took place on January 12th, 2013. I'll run down the full card here. First round match, the Young Bucks beat the Inner City Machine Guns. The unbreakable effing machines of Brian Cage and Michael Elgin beat the Super Smash Brothers and per DDT4 rules. The Smash Brothers, who were the champions, they lose the title to Cage and Elgin. Future Shock beats Eddie Edwards and Roderick Strong. And El Generico and Kevin Steen defeat the Briscoe Brothers. Semifinals matches... The Young Bucks win the titles. They beat the Unbreakable F and Machines, and Generico and Steen beat Future Shock. There are two non-tournament matches on the show with Willie Mack defeating B-Boy and Drake Younger defeating Sammy Callahan. And then your main event, PWG DDT4 2013 Finals. The Young Bucks defeat Kevin Steen and El Generico in El Generico's final PWG match. Mike, before I kick it to you, I will read what the Wrestling Observer Newsletter from January 21st of 2013 had to say about this. They say after the main event, Steen hugged Generico after the match and the entire locker room came out to say goodbye to Generico. Steen was almost in tears when he said, no matter where you end up, I'd be nothing without you. Generico said that if worse comes to worse, he'll end up back in PWG and that PWG is number one. Steen's speech and Generico's farewell were said to be an awesome moment. Generico has been a fixture with PWG since 2004 when he and Steen started coming to Southern California. He held their world title twice and tag team titles five times, including twice with Steen. He also won their 2010 tag team tournament with Paul London and won the 2011 Battle of Los Angeles tournament. So Mike, Generico is Largo loop bound. He is leaving PWG. Do you have any memories of this show? This was an incredible show. Like I, I'm like looking through this and this was a time that I would try to six months later, get the DDT for things. And, I, and I'm a sucker for tag team tournaments. That's like in general. And you know, they, Given for what the scene was and what they were getting out here, I mean, there's really not any chaff whatsoever in this tag team tournament. I mean, Eddie Edwards and Roderick Strong, the Dojo Bros, were like an established thing in PWG at that time. And then 
it was a big deal that the Briscoes were brought back considering all the drama that's gone around with the Briscoes and PWG and missing flights. And then uh, we talked a little bit about this last week, Drake Younger. Like we talked about how Drake, when he moved out to California, he reinvented himself in a lot of ways for better and a lot of ways for worse. And <laughs> I mean, he's semi main eventing and he was one of the, uh, one of, kind of seen as one of the local gods of receipt at that time. Like, like this show is really kind of a remarkable one and really a kind of like, a testament of what the uh, what PWG would become, how the indies changed very rapidly in 2013, and really, I mean, you're looking over to the formation of NXT, the NXT that we know over the next few months. You hit all of my talking points, which is why I like doing this podcast with you, Mike, because you talked about the Briscoe brothers and their rocky relationship with PWG. The uh, Eddie Edwards and Roderick Strong, they had just started teaming on the December 2012 PWG show, which was the first Mystery Vortex. And if you haven't seen it, the opening match on that show is Eddie and Ronnie versus the Young Bucks. And it is like a 22-minute opener that is out of this world. Kevin Steen is on commentary, and he's losing his mind during the entire thing. So I would recommend that if people haven't seen it. And then this was match number two in a best-of-three series between Drake and Sammy. And these matches were just horrifically violent, bordering on deathmatch stuff. I mean, they were certainly the most violent thing PWG had done since Necro was a regular in their promotion. They, you know, they've always excelled at brawls and hardcore matches, but the Drake Sammy stuff was almost the next generation of like Necro Butcher versus Super Dragon, which is, uh, I'm not squeamish when it comes to wrestling stuff, but Necro Butcher versus Super Dragon from Bola 2006 is terrifying to watch. It is, it is horrifically violent and Drake and Sammy was really not too far off. So with that in mind, that's kind of the PWG landscape. But if you want to keep talking about Generico, we go and we'll skip ahead a little bit. A lot of the stuff we're going to talk about is actually outside of our weekend. But because Mania Weekend's coming up, there's so much within these next two shows that we're going to jump ahead a little bit. The March 19th Wrestling Observer Newsletter notes that El Generico debuted in NXT on March 7th without a mask using his real name. He did a tag match teaming with Cassius Ono against the Wyatt family of Luke Harper and Eric Rowan. It really doesn't mean much of anything Dave says, and there's no indication more than just him showing them his wrestling without a mask. If they think he's better with the mask, he'll have it on, almost guaranteed whatever happens. He's not going to use his real name, so it's just trying things out. So, Mike, do you remember, because I think we'll talk about it more next week, because I remember seeing Generico without a mask for the first time. Do you remember seeing Generico without a mask for the first time? Well, my first time was before this, but it was more wild that he was wrestling under his real name, considering how protective El Generico was of his uh, privacy and keeping the gimmick. I remember seeing photos of like WXW where you'd see like this mysterious redheaded guy with a beard who looked like he fit the frame of El Generico, like with other people. And you're like, oh, I guess that's who that is. Okay. But it's just wild. Like the idea you have Chris Hero and El Generico as Cassius Ono. And then Generico's real name before he became Sami Zayn. And it's just like, it was such like a bizarre moment. And, and it was teaming like, against Brody Lee and the Vintner who did pro wrestling Noah tours. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Eric Red, Redbeard. I mean, that still blows my mind that he was a Noah guy, by the way. <laughs> who could forget the Eric Redbeard run of pro wrestling <clears throat> Noah? I well, think it's what he, him and Ted DiBiase Jr. teaming. I believe that right. was why he was brought over. Was it a Harley thing that he was brought over to? 
Oh, I, I would think it has to be because it's not like he it's uh, he obviously wasn't a Ring of Honor transport, so it would have had to have been a Harley thing. And he also just screams Harley race guy. So I don't know <laughs> for sure, but that would be the most logical way he got into Noah unless it was blackmailing Masawa. He trained with Eddie Sharkey in 2003. One, did not know Eddie Sharkey was still alive in 2003. <laughs> and two, his name that he had in... He apparently was invited, so I guess he did a tryout, I guess, at Harley's, but he was invited directly into the dojo. His name, though? Theroof Marius. That, that was his gimmick that, that in Minnesota. Rocks. That, that sounds like a Chikara gimmick, which we'll be talking about plenty of those later on in this show. Oh, so so by that the rocks. Way, by the way, Eddie Sharkey, still alive, 84 years old. And he'll shoot on you, too. That's, that, that's incredible to think about. Well, what else is incredible if you want to go to the opposite end of the spectrum? Young guys that were breaking into the wrestling industry at this time. The Ring of Honor Top Prospect Tournament of 2013 kicked off on January 5th, 2013. And I'll read you the entire results of the tournament. There's eight guys. The tournament starts with Tadarius Thomas versus Antonio Thomas, who was a member of the Heartthrobs or the Heartbreakers, that OVW tag team that went to TNA and completely bombed. Also, Silas Young defeats Adam Page in the opening round. QT Marshall defeats Mike Seidel, friend of the show. Matt Taven defeats ACH. So those are your first round matches with Taven, ACH, Marshall, Silas Young, and Adam Page. Really still being relevant players in contemporary wrestling. Semi-finals, Matt Taven defeats Silas Young and Darius Thomas defeats QT Marshall. And on February 2nd at the Ring of Honor TV tapings, Matt Taven wins the 2013 pro- uh, Top Prospect Tournament Finals, defeating Tadarius Thomas. These uh, tournaments always kind of, the way they do the Top Prospect Tournament, like the winner is always like the most ROH, just milk toast pit person, Matt Taven, perfect example of it. But then you like look into who they had there and I'm like looking throughout its history and throughout its recent history two, 2011 had an incredibly strong lineup when you take out uh, the ROH students but 2013 given like what people have done like since then that is a pretty plum field you know like six out of the eight are still within within major or I guess five because I guess uh, Antonio Thomas just really podcasts and does uh beyond shows but i mean that's still like a crazy amount of talent coming through there that time yeah and beyond wrestling is not a major league promotion i will go ahead and say that now because i think mike was too afraid to but yeah i mean this is those are five guys with taven marshall silas page and ach that not only became players in wrestling and are currently but those five in particular became mainstays in ring of honor for an extended period of time so you know, the top prospect tournament has been memed and rightfully so because some of the picks they make are completely outrageous. But in 2013, they really seem to nail finding some young talent that could stay on board. And even Tadarius Thomas, who's no longer doing anything, was a guy in Ring of Honor for a short period of time. And it actually brings us to the 11th anniversary show, which happened on March 2nd, 2013, at the Frontier Fieldhouse in Chicago Ridge, Illinois. And Mike, I'll run down the show and then we'll talk about it a little bit because it did not draw well 
but Dave Meltzer was raving about this show, and there was a big angle at the end of this. So it begins with ACH winning a six-man mayhem match against Adam Page, Mike Seidel, QT Marshall, Silas Young, and Tadarius Thomas. Those are most of the guys from the top prospect tournament. From there, Jimmy Jacobs and Steve Carino defeat Caprice Coleman and Cedric Alexander. BJ Whitmer wins a no-holds-barred match against Charlie Haas via referee decision. The American Wolves defeat the Forever Hooligans in a match that screams 2013. Best two out of three falls match Michael Elgin beats Roderick Strong. In the World Television title match, top prospect tournament winner Matt Taven defeats Adam Cole for the belt. And then semi-main event, Red Dragon, Bobby Fish, and Kyle O'Reilly, well, they win the tag team title belts from the Briscoe Brothers, and your main event, Kevin Steen, defeats Jay Lethal. Mike, I, I get the sense you weren't a big Ring of Honor guy in no, the spring of no, 2013. Do you have any memories of this show? Oh, I remember, like, the uh, I was the, the, the thing that kept me into Ring of Honor at this time was Red Dragon. So that was them and the Briscoes. This would be really before the real... Or this is the start of the real Red Dragon run at that time. But that match was, I think that match was probably the match of the night, either that or the Forever Hulkins. It's kind of interesting. This is the first kind of, I don't want to say New Japan influence into Ring of Honor this early. But, I mean, Forever Hulkins at this time, I mean, they did work a lot at AAA. But, I mean, they're primarily known as New Japan guys, especially when you look at it in 2020. So, it's a remarkable card. It also very much is a card of the times. I mean... The, the QT Marshall with Artie Evans. I mean, that that's pretty much up there with that. And then, of course, you still have House of Truth knocking about before Jay Lethal joins the group. So it's an interesting card. Um, didn't it only draw, like, 400, I want to say? Like, it drew terribly, right? So what happened was the 11th anniversary show, it drew about 1,000 fans. Dave estimated Oh, look anywhere. at me. I was absolutely well, well, no, wrong No, there. hold on, because I'll, I'll tell you why you're right. So it drew anywhere from about 700 to 1,000 fans, which at that point in Chicago Ridge, that's nothing. I mean, I've seen that building packed with 1,400 or so. So doing 1,000 for an anniversary show with Kevin Steen as your headliner is is really bad. Now, to, to a few points you made before we talk about the attendance and how it projected to the next day. Uh, it was also announced, and, and to your point about Red Dragon, on January 21st that Bobby Fish signed an 18-month contract with Ring of Honor. Fish and O'Reilly are changing their look as a tag team and are emulating Rory McDonald and Mike Ricci of UFC after all the heat McDonald got against BJ Penn. Fish is also working as a substitute college professor in New York and went to Siena College where he was a first-team all-conference linebacker and team MVP. Mike, I bring this up not because of the contract news, but because of this last sentence. He's also been taking M improv classes trying to help add to his personality mike what do you think bobby fish would be like on your improv team oh well first off he will be much older than everyone else on it like <laughs> that goes that without guy. saying right yes. <laughs> he is that guy as someone who's only done like some intro improv level courses i would have to say that he probably is the one like like you know how in the office how they make the various suit comment about michael scott always wanting to have a gun during yes. his improv team there, there, there is that guy like a lot of the stuff in the office i kind of roll my eyes at but that is a very eerie thing of like the one person who's either wants to turn everything into like a weird firefight or like wants to start f fights or wants to make things just inappropriately sexy and i think that's what Bobby fix was he was the guy who just got really horny in practice 
I think that that last note, especially, and I'm a big Bobby Fish fan, but I do think that is a very accurate way of describing his time in an improv class. So Bobby Fish is signed on. Red Dragon wins the tag team titles. But this show is remembered for the main event and the main event angle. And I'll read what Dave says here. Rhino, who didn't wrestle on the show, came out and gave Lethal a gore. Jimmy Jacobs then took out referee Todd Sinclair. Mark and Jay Briscoe came out to attack Steen and Rhino, but Rhino gored Jay and Jacobs, and Jacobs used a diamond cutter on Mark. Caprice Coleman and Cedric Alexander both came to the ring, but that led to the return of Jimmy Rave wearing a scum shirt, throwing both of them out of the ring. Next running in were BJ Whitmer and Rhett Titus, but Titus, instead of helping, dropkick Whitmer and then took off his own shirt, showing a scum t-shirt underneath. Michael Elgin came out and threw out Jimmy Jacobs. That brought in Cliff Compton, who was Domino in the Deuce and Domino tag team, who threw powder in Elgin's eyes. He then took off his t-shirt, revealing a scum shirt underneath. They handcuffed Elgin to the corner. Davey and Eddie came out. Eddie started attacking Steen. While all of this was going on, Steed was just standing there and not partaking in the heel beatdowns, but the faces would come out and attack him. Mark Briscoe was tied to the corner. Adam Cole ran in for ROH, but that brought out Matt Hardy, who gave Cole a twist of fate, then took off his shirt, revealing a scum shirt. Whitmer and the Briscoes by that point were all tied up in the corner. Dave says Compton's debut got a big pop, which was surprising, Dave notes. Hardy was completely booed, but does give the heel group someone who has genuine star power. Carino is expected to be the mouthpiece, as well as added to the television commentary team as the voice of scum, similar to the role that Taz plays currently in TNA with the Aces and Eights, to give you a time frame of where we're at in wrestling. Dave continues to say, Carino came out in a suit as the mouthpiece. The storyline is they claim their goal is to kill the promotion promotion, which Carino claims is in retribution for the promotion screwing him over for the over for years, not using him, and losing hearing in one of his ears in an ROH match. The idea is that all the members will have their reasons for hating the promotion, such as Hardy claiming he was given an unfair treatment while going for the TV title, Rave being let go, and Compton never being used. So Scum existed. This angle happened in early March of 2013. And they are killed off entirely in mid-June of 2013. So, so Mike, am I led to believe that a heel <laughs> unit of Kevin Steen, Jimmy Jacobs, Steve Carino, Cliff Compton, Rhett Titus, Jimmy Raven, Matt Hardy wasn't the draw that Ring of Honor was looking for? I mean, at this point, and we talked about the end of Cornette's time and... Now that we're fully in delirious, like you, you take a look at look at those names, and this is kind of happening. I would say, and this is going to be a bold thing, and feel free to push back on me on this. When they did the Bullet Club, and especially like the Bullet Club takeover with like Adam Cole at that one Chicago Red show, like they were able to do something very similar, but it, it drew. So it makes me wonder: is it something that like you have Hardy, you have Steen, you have Carino? who are really the big parts here in Jimmy Jacobs. But, I mean, it seems like wrong time and place is what I would say. Then that's why they had to kill it off so quickly. I will say, and it's something that you can laugh about now, I don't know how you felt about it, but I know in my life, and I'm going to be very brave here, I'm going to be very open, very vulnerable, I owned a Cliff Compton t-shirt. Cliff Compton was a guy 
very briefly oh, yeah. on the indie scene because of his, you know, he was Mr. 1859. He went on the 18th episode of the Art of Wrestling podcast, and then on the 59th episode, told his story about uh, uh, going to Nigeria and all of the mayhem that ensued there with the great power Uti. So I can't knock them for bringing Cliff Compton in. Even if a year later I was at a Ring of Honor show with Cliff Compton versus Jay Lethal, and it was one of the worst matches I've ever seen ever. Well, Cliff is also a Chicago guy. So that's another thing where, like, Dave is not realizing what is going on here because, yeah, he was mainly known through, like, Ohio Valley in a short WWE run, but he's a Midwest guy. And you take a look at, like, a lot of that group, you have people there who have ties to Chicago. So no wonder it probably got a huge response there. And then, as I just looked on the thing, they ran a show in Asheville, North Carolina, after they did TV tapings. Like, well, we've talked about how bad it is to run the Carolinas, and they just went and did it in Asheville, North Carolina, three weeks later, and it does not seem like I'm looking at this card. Oh, boy. Uh, Jimmy Jacobs and Jimmy Rave defeat uh, Grizzly, Redwood, and Mike Mondo. That's a big one right there. Like, uh just a really just rough show. Is, so. is that the Ring of Honor show that is titled War? Yes, sir. Yeah. So at this point, starting in 2013, I'm watching every Ring of Honor show and I'm watching most TV and I have still never seen War. That was a, a show on paper that I just knew I it was not necessary viewing. Oh, you don't want to see Alabama Attitude of Corey Hollis and Mike Posey challenge Red Dragon? Okay, that match I do because Alabama Attitude was great and I never understood why they why Ring of Honor didn't sign them because both of those guys were really good wrestlers and Ring of Honor would use them, they would get over in the building and then they wouldn't sign them. I mean, some things aren't aren't made to work out. <laughs> well, <you know? laughs> yeah, well, Ring of Honor pivoted to a business model that was not made to work out. So Dave says the show in ring was excellent. There was nothing that would be winning a match of the year or competing for it, but every match was good and most matches overachieved, some greatly so. But the promotion is clearly not hot. The, the show drew 700 fans in Chicago and iPay-Per-View orders were in the 1,000 range, both of which had to be disappointing. Our own feedback on the show and anticipation level was minimal compared to previous ROH events. I believe if you look in the Observer for the show, I think 24 people submitted feedback to a Ring of oh, Honor iPay-Per-View. Yeah, so, so things are going downhill here. And as Dave also says, and this is the important part, which will will tie into next week's Ring of Honor notes as well, they also debuted the concept of taping television the afternoon after the iPay-Per-View in the same city. That, at least here, turned out disastrous as only 300 fans attended the tapings and many left before the show ended. So, you know, Mike, I'm a Midwest guy. I know some people. I wasn't quite going to Ring of Honor at this point. My first Ring of Honor show was October of 2013. But friend of the show, Sean Sloan, was at this show, and I texted him about it. And he said, and I will quote, worst show of my life. They took out my entire section, and Carrie Silken said, sit wherever you'd like. And then I told him Dave said there were 300 people there. And he said, there's no way there were 300. Three sides with three rows deep is a long way from 300. So that television taping was abysmal, to say the least. And if you look at the cards, we're not going to go through them. But there's uh, not exactly a lot to get excited about there. So Ring of Honor is in this very precarious position where the in-ring is at a high point. You know, Sinclair 
in those first few years. I mean, this is a, this is a roster with Kevin Steen, Davey Richards, Eddie Edwards, Jay Lethal was motivated, Michael Elgin was healthy, a young ACH, a young Adam Cole. There's very clearly wrestlers that are talented on this roster. But again, 24 people sending results to the to uh, uh, sending feedback to the observer. Nobody cares about Ring of Honor at this time period. Yeah, and it's something that we can't even find DGUSA pay-per-view buys at this point. I've tried to look. I've tried to ask. It's gotten to a point, really, where we're talking about, he said about 1,000 buys here, and that's such a stark difference to seeing how big Wrestle Kingdom was and King of Pro Wrestling and how the Ustream thing model really operated. But, Case, I did look up one of these shows, and I, I'll, just, I'll have to say, like, I went to a Ring of Honor TV taping, 20 it, show and yo were on excursion at that time so it would have been 2016 okay and it was in atlanta it was at center stage which is a cool venue center stage is a place worth going to go see where less than once twice one of the most miserable experiences just because of like no wonder people like left her in this and here's what they had on the fourth episode of the taping so this is ring of honor wrestling 81 the dark match is rick matrix and aaron solo no, I don't know if this is the Aaron Solo wheel. Oh, yes, it is the Aaron Solo we were thinking of. It was spelt differently on the cage match. ACH and Tadarius Thomas, Adrenaline Rush, defeat Adam Page and Mike Seidel. Four, four corner survival. Athena defeats uh, Allie, or under her previous name, Mischief, and Scarlet Bordeaux. Singles match. Roderick Strong defeats Pepper Parks, a.k.a. The Blade. And then ROH World Tag Team title match. Red Dragon defeat Forever Hooligans. That's an awesome episode of TV, if you ask me. Like, for like a one-hour syndicated wrestling show, that's... that's 2020, Mike's all in on that one episode of that, but you're going to be sitting around for at least four hours till you get to that, and these matches probably were taped out of order. Yeah, Red Dragon and Forever Hooligans always had really good chemistry with one another, and I they I think they only wrestled on Ring of Honor because Kozlov leaves right around the time Red Dragon comes into New Japan. I can't get over the idea that that match happened on the same show that Scarlet Bordeaux wrestled at. I did not know she ever wrestled for Ring of Honor. That might sound mean, but I will stand by it. I mean, the rest of this, I mean, seven-minute Roderick Strong versus Pepper Parks match. That's That probably rocked, to be honest. And then... Mike going all four... in on Pepper Parks here. All right. I mean, maybe it's just 2020 and how much I like the Butcher and the Blade and Eddie Kingston's family rubbing off on this, but I'm finding, I'm finding my joy in wrestling case, my wrestle joy. I am not touching that as we continue to get a, a, a scope <laughs> two of the episodes in a row. <laughs> two recordings in a row that I've made a Russell Joy joke that case is no soul. We're going to see how long this is going to go until I eventually psychologically break him down. Think about all the topics I will talk about on this show, and Russell Joy gets a I plead the fifth from me. But uh, talking about the larger independent landscape, we also have a pair of shows on February 2nd, 2013, National Pro Wrestling Day, hosted by Chikara. This was the first year they did it. Uh, Dave has a big write-up in The Observer, and notably, and I'll, I'll read this part, uh, a few noted that fans were told this was a family show asked, asked for no, and asked for no profane language to be used, but then they had men beating up women in matches to a degree some found uncomfortable. And Mike, if that isn't the story of Chikara, I do not know what is. <laughs> Dave goes on to say, there were also complaints that so many of the wrestlers didn't know how to connect with fans and looked minor league. There were a lot of cool moves and younger talent who showed potential, and the fans did 
the fans there did enjoy it. CZW was originally not invited, made a big stink about it, and ended up being invited. At one point, they planned to shoot their own angle of having several wrestlers jump into the ring, take over the live mic, and hold the show hostage, and shoot an angle that, quote, wrestling fear CZW. When the CZW match started, all the microphones in the building were brought to the back to make sure nobody shot an unapproved verbal angle. Mike, I know from experience, and I'm not speaking out of school with this, I don't think, but when AAW used Teddy Hart, they had the same rule in place. Teddy Hart would go to the ring, and it was somebody's job to remove the microphones from ringside. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I remember watching this, and this was like kind of a disaster of a show. So so let me let me run down some highlights on these two shows because there's an afternoon show and an evening show. It's like they're in, you know, the big egg dome in 94. There's a million matches on these shows, but I'll, I'll read you some stuff that stood out to me. Opening match, ROH World Tag Team titles. The Briscoes defeat Jimmy Jacobs and Steve Carino, which even that, the fact that Ring of Honor at this point is participating in something called National uh, Pro Wrestling Day, which is an, a glorified independent show, I think shows you where they're at. Uh, Josh Alexander defeats Ethan Page. Eric Royal and Chiva Kid defeat Rick Converse and Trevor Lee. I'm not. Oh, doing I know a, that match. <laughs> I'm not doing a bit when I say that the CWF Mid Atlantic match was well received by everybody in attendance. Which uh, the more things change, the more they stay the same. Uh, Cole Cabana defeated Mike Quackenbush in a Europe European style of match. In your semi-main event on that afternoon show, Drew Gulak defeats Frank O'Rourke. Those are two names we'll be getting to know relatively soon in this series. And then in the evening show, uh, matches I liked here, the SAT defeats Angel Ortiz and Mike Drastic, now known as LAX. Those were uh, guys trained by the SAT. Uh, There was a Colony match where the Colony and 3.0 team to defeat Los Ice Creams and Team Fist. The NYWC offer match with Apollyon and Tony Nese defeating Alex Reynolds and John Silver. That got over big. A.R. Fox defeated Shane Strickland in the Evolve match. Now, Mike, does anything perhaps sound suspicious to you there? Uh, I mean, for one, you have a lot of people who are working double in those shows, if not triple. But what are you referring to? Uh, Specifically, the A.R. Fox-Shane Strickland match, which was the Evolve offer match on National Pro Wrestling Day. This is notable because at this point, Shane Strickland had worked one match in the history of Evolve, and it is a show that is not (laughs) technically Evolve canon. It was the Evolve NYWC Rocks Off Cinco de Mayo Festival, where I believe Gabe sent some talent to help out NYWC, and Shane Strickland is on that show, but up to this point, he had not worked Evolve yet, and that is the Evolve offer match, which... I think also speaks to the the popularity and the legacy of Evolve at the time. And then your main event of that evening show was the Ray Day Voladores 2013 finals match where Two Cold Scorpio defeated ACH. Yeah, it's a real interesting thing that, you know, there's a lot of things that people say and should say about Mike Quackenbush. But you look at like those two shows and it, it makes a lot of sense the talent that was selected to be on those shows given to where they went over the next seven years. And I feel like I said a lot, at least recently. It's like, well, this show might not have been good, but these people turn out to be someone. And that kind <laughs> yeah. of is where the, that's kind of where the indies were case in 2012 and 2013 before really 2014. And really starting at WrestleMania week in 2013, you know, like it was like, oh, these guys would have better matches later. And uh, yeah, I think that's a great take. 
Well, luckily, we've got one other wrestling note to touch on before we get to Heat, and this was full of good wrestlers, and this was Wrestle Kingdom 7, Evolution of the Tokyo Dome, January 4th, 2013. Uh, the card here, I'll run down real quick. Nakanishi, Strongman, Aki Bono, and MVP defeat Takashi Azuka, Toriyano, Yujiro Takahashi, and Bob Sapp. Mike, real quick, what are your thoughts on that opener? <laughs> I watched this show live, and I was, I was like, wow, that's the opener. Well, I can see Bob Sapp live. That's something. And yes, Bob Sapp boy, live in, in MVP's final New Japan match, which was cause for celebration. It's just, just like looking at like this card now that I've pulled it up. Real statement of the times, 2013. Days days of the long featured past. I, I miss it. Never open weight title match. Masato Tanaka defeats Shelton Benjamin. Killer Elite Squad retained the tag titles over Hiroki Goto and Carl Anderson. Yuji Nagata defeats Minoru Suzuki. Prince Devitt retains the junior heavyweight title over Kota Ibushi and Agent 47 Loki. Tenkoji defeats Keiji Muto and Shinjiro Otani, who replaced an injured Daichi Hashimoto. And then your final three matches, Togi Makabe defeats Katsuyori Shibata. Nakamura retains the Intercontinental title over Kazushi Sakuraba. And Hiroshi Tanahashi retains the heavyweight title over Kazuchika Okada. What a, like, just like an insane, like, output of a show that you had, like, the big main event they've been building for such a while— this is the one that had Jim Ross and Matt Stryker on commentary. That was, uh, that was Wrestle Kingdom 9. That was two years later. This is still very much in the infancy of New Japan being in the West. Okay, so don't trust Wikipedia. Don't trust Wikipedia. They said, unless they went back and dubbed this. They might have gone back and dubbed this. That could have yes, been because this was, yes, I think that Tanahashi Okada match, and this is where I will say don't quote me because I could be wrong. I believe when New Japan on Access started, this was where they began showing stuff because New Japan on Axis began the same week as Wrestle Kingdom 9, which was that show with Global Force and, and JR and Matt Stryker. But the Axis show began that week and it was a few years behind when it first began because I remember specifically the Okada Makabe defense from June of 2013. JR like kills it on commentary in that match. Like that seemed like a match he actually really enjoyed calling. Or that was a that was Mauro Ranallo and Josh Barnett at that time, so it wasn't even JR, but that was that was a match that I remember like watching it on Access and going like, wow, that was much better than I remember. But this is Wrestle Kingdom Seven. It was on Ustream, but we're still in the very infancy of New Japan existing as a Western product. Yeah, you're right. You're right. That had to be a redub. Um, I do not know if you had this in your notes case, but I have something I want to spring on you for your take. Oh, go for it. So the day after Wrestle Kingdom, so on. January 5th, 2013, uh, the uh, promoter of New Japan, Takaki uh, Kadani, resigned his position uh, as New Japan uh, chairman because he wanted to both accompany Sakuraba and Shibata out to ringside, wanted them both of them to win, and wanted to be personally in Shibata's or in Sak- Sakuraba's corner as he won the Intercontinental Championship. However, there was a conflict with the Bookers. With both that led to both of Laughter Seven losing and then Kadani resigning. Then he left the position inside of New Japan and then he just kind of just became like the floating agent as he still owned Bushi Road. 
Yeah. I don't know if you had that down. No, that, that, that was is exactly current. what I was going to bring up. This was something I had literally no memory of. I did not know this happened. Oh, yeah. And and I should note real quick, you know, this show drew a legit attendance of 29,000, which was the most uh, uh, people paid to go to a Tokyo Dome show since 2003 when they did Kobashi versus Chono in the Dome. So... It's a huge business success, but then you get this insane thing from Kidani where in The Observer, Dave talks about how Kidani wanted to lead an invasion angle, or not, he wanted to book an invasion angle of shooters invading New Japan led by Antonio Inoki, and obviously Gato and Jono were like, no, we're not we're not doing that. That sucks. And Kidani got upset because Sakuraba and Shibata were his guys, and he, and he briefly resigned from the company. And it remains like I, this is lost history to me. I had no idea this happened. Yeah, because there was so much heat about Laughter Seven, the way that Kidani was so hands on, especially like we're we're still w- within the first like year period that Bushi Road owned the company. So the guy comes in here buys the company his gaming company buys the company pushes this new star to the top and then once you get involved i totally understand why all the vets were like nah we ain't messing with this you know like it made total sense why they all were kind of skeptical and put did some pushback there and of course kadani is still around he's still the ceo of uh bushi road and he's a lot more hands-on with stardom than he is in new japan these days but it's just one of those things that's kind of remarkable that this is something that happened like i think that's when he handed i forgot the person's name who they handed who he handed it off to but it was a pretty just kind of like crazy like moment and then pretty much ever since then everything there you've never really heard i guess really until may any sort of drama between the wrestlers in the office and the rest of the office it's funny to think that in Dave's review of this show, he talks about how New Japan really messed up the opportunity by not having Okada win this match. Two years later, Wrestle Kingdom 9, which was the one with English commentary, Okada and Tanahashi headlined the Doma again. And, you know, people bet their house on Okada finally winning this match at the Dome, and he loses again. And it's not until the next year at Wrestle Kingdom 10 in 2016 where Okada finally wins the IWGP heavyweight title from Tanahashi at the Tokyo Dome. So it's just, it's funny how New Japan at this point, you know, we look at that like they made all the right decisions because they instilled this trust in us that over 2020, uh, at least for me, it evaporated. I no longer trust the booking of this promotion. But in 2013, New Japan's not a dynasty. They had a pretty good 2012 and things were trending upwards, but they weren't the powerhouse that we know them as now. Yeah, and it's something that I have a very... I know I've talked to you about this case. I have a very pessimistic view overall of the Japanese landscape, and a lot of it is the right things that Bushiro did for their company that does not run off to the other companies. But it took a while for bushi road to really like start get going i mean because the fact that like they drew or they sold twenty three thousand tickets to the or twenty nine thousand tickets to the show was just like a giant surprise because even though wrestle kingdom 6 was twenty three thousand tickets at that time it still was something that was like oh you have like all these people going on here that was a show that had a lot of participation from both tna with cmll with uh with a little bit of all japan a little bit of noah but i mean you look at this show, with the exception of really having Muto and Otani, and then Minoru Suzuki, he is a quote-unquote freelancer. You're getting it to the core of, like, looking up and down this card of the people that really, like, with the exception of, like, 
the Gaijin, I guess, more so than anything, that would be around for the next five to six years. Absolutely. I think I think that's a, a great point. And Mike, my final note on the timeline as we as we transition, we're about to transition to Dragon Gate USA, but I, I have this down. We don't need to spend, you know, more than a minute on it. But I, I thought this was relevant to the industry as a whole. When we talk about sort of seismic shifts in the landscape, and that was on February twenty-third, UFC one fifty-seven, Ronda Rousey and Liz Carmouche debut or they headline that show, rather, their debut for the UFC. And Dave says, during this show, with the benefit of hindsight, it almost seems laughable now that th- that this match and the idea of it was subject to great debates over the last few months. The reaction of both women was positive and far stronger than anyone else on this show. So I, I don't know if you're a UFC person. We've never talked about it. I don't know if you care about this, but reading these notes, I felt like I had to include this just for how big of a deal Rousey's fights would become specifically within the wrestling industry. Case, this probably won't come as a surprise to you. I was a big MMA guy. I I ordered the show. I remember explicitly being like, no, Ronda Rousey. Like, because like the big thing was like one, Dana White always said that he would never have women in the UFC, and then and then Ronda Rousey comes around into strike force, and she and he is like, oh no, she's money. I, I I care about money. She'll be in the UFC. And then there was the whole thing because. Women's MMA for the longest time in the United States was three three-minute rounds, and there was like this real, like, just misogynistic. Oh, women can't go 15 minutes in or 25 minutes in MMA. And then you know Ronda Rousey, like this Liz Carmouche fight was a big deal because up till this point, Ronda Rousey was known because uh, Judo Mike LaBelle was one of her managers and was like one of her trainers at the time, and he always had the stopwatch because she was winning every single match by. Uh, by by submission and at that point so this was only her seventh pro fight at that point other than misha tate no match went past one minute with ronda rousey like i i don't i actually don't know this much of about this for you case you're not much of an mma person are you i i was getting into it around this time i i feel like i fell off an mma probably around 2017 but there's a few years directly because of rousey and kind of the tail end of Anderson Silva being a relevant player where I was in on UFC. And even, you know, my dad, who doesn't like wrestling, doesn't care about wrestling, he was getting really into it specifically because of, of the women and because of Ronda Rousey in particular. And I just, you know, I miss when the UFC did it suck and was culturally culturally relevant outside of Barstool Sports Podcast because, you know, it's, it's the best. And, and this Rousey fight just stood out to me as something that, you know, literally changed the landscape it changed wrestling as we oh, know it. it was was a pop culture event and, and i'll i'll come full circle we talked earlier about bobby fish's improv classes mike have you ever seen ronda rousey on the pete holmes show you would think i would be a pete holmes person you know you do kind of well, give that vibe <laughs> yeah yeah and, and you would not be wrong about making up that impression Never, I've never seen like any of his thing, any of his like stand up. I've seen his interviews and other things. I'm like, oh, Pete's a funny person, but I never had the inclination to go to the uh, Pete Holmes show or what was the HBO uh, series he, was he on, had. He was uh, crashing with Artie Lang and Lauren Lapkus, uh, a big Venn diagram of people Case likes, con- con- <laughs> you know, con- colliding into that show. Uh, but I-, I mentioned that interview because Pete Holmes interviewed Ronda Rousey on his old TV show, and it is the only time. I've seen a Ronda Rousey interview where I thought, 
oh, that's a cool girl. Like, Pete Holmes gets so much out of her in this short little interview that I would recommend looking it up on YouTube because I know it's there. And it is it is a nice little watch. So that is that is the timeline. We talked Ring of Honor, PWG, National Park Wrestling Day, New Japan, and Ronda Rousey. I have one note from the Newswire, and it came from January 2nd when Gabe says, and I quote, you might be asking yourself why A.R. Fox and Akira Tozawa are teaming on January 27th, since Fox and Shima are the Open the United Gate champions. And to Gabe's credit, I was asking myself this. Gabe says the reason is Shima will not be able to make this tour due to obligations in Japan. The Young Bucks have made it clear that they want the Open the United Gate tag team titles and have challenged Fox to a match. DGUSA officials told Fox to pick any partner he wanted, and Fox selected Tozawa. This is a true once-in-a-lifetime dream, te- uh, dream tag team match. On January 27th. So, Mike, yeah. be- before we talk about this show, I-, I have to ask, because up to this point, granted, the booking of Japanese foreigners, Drangate talent, has been greatly reduced, but Gabe has not exactly been blending unit lines. You know, he he brings over, you know, two Jimmies or two people from Mad Blanky, and they work together. Now we see... Fox, who is positioned with Shima, who is a babyface, teaming with Akira Tozawa, who is a heel. Did this bother you at all? You know, I think I was so mad about the no ropes match case <laughs> that this thing was like, hey, the, we talk about cardinal sins and like this. This is like one of the ones where you say like three Hail Marys, I'm okay with you because <laughs> it's Air Fox and Akira Tozawa versus the Young Bucks, you know? like you you had to blend the lines and there's a lot of things that when we get into like our wrap up as the series is coming to close there are some significant concerns i would say about how gabe considered the unit landscape how gabe was informed on the unit landscape it's not just on gabe there i'd say that that there's two parties to make this not work very well and here you know given who was all there it, you're not going to say ar fox is calling up ada to the main event here the jimmies like, you've already kind of had them kind of set and stuff there. And then I guess you could have done, like, Rich Swan. Like, you still have the Ricochet thing that Ricochet's not on the show, so you can have Ricochet. So, Tazawa's the only one that makes sense there, you know? It's funny you mentioned Ada because that was the one name I was trying to think of, of who could have main evented this show. And it obviously wouldn't have made sense to this guy that's only been in opening matches, but just in the context of Dragon Gate booking, it's like, well, I guess you could have had Fox and Ada team together. Like, that is is accurate then you could have done Taylor versus Tozawa, which is a match I don't think we ever got uh, in Dragon Gate USA. But I- I'm with you. I think in the, con- uh, in the context of Heat 2013, that really didn't matter because nothing on this show really mattered. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This is, this is a show that I, I guess we're going to get into it now. Heat uh, 2013, as we said at the top, was on January 27th from the Pappy Pineda Bone Dome in Huntington Park, California. Case, just off the top, this show is not as bad as the Taylor's Michigan show from last year, but did you get the same feeling of futility that I got during this match? Because I felt like this was a what are we doing here moment if ever was one. The opening match or the entire show? Just like the entire thing, I just, it, it, it took a t- until a certain point for the show to kind of turn on for me a little bit, but boy, getting to that certain point and given like the names on the show there's not like local talent really unless you consider drake younger but like you're like watching this promotion and what i'm assuming is a warehouse that's been retrofitted into a small wrestling venue with maybe 80 people there and it just like 
con like the venue looked bad last week when we were watching the uh when we were watching revolt 2013 but this is just a it's just depressing yeah the 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 optics on this show on a number of levels are really really poor and i think that distracted from my viewing and partially deterred my enjoyment of the show i don't think i hated things as much as you did i there's there are few and far between, but there are a few bright spots on the show, and you're right, it is not as bad as that Taylor Michigan show, because I don't think any individual segment was as bad as some of the stuff we saw there, but yeah, this show certainly takes a while to get going. Yeah, so we open the show with Eric Cannon eating a fast food sandwich and a pop, and Johnny Gargano's trying to get thing, him to take things seriously and hit the gym, and then uh, Gabe turns the camera to Johnny and says, hey Johnny, how are you feeling? He says, I'm in a lot of pain, and you know... Brian Kendrick, he was smart. He called my bluff there, but I, but he will not win. And boy, just starting off the bat, just shitting on Eric Cannon, kind of a bummer. A, a reoccurring theme on this show, but it, it is a it is a strange promo. It actually really bothered me. It put me in a bad mood to start this show because one, it's Gabe Gargano and Cannon doing a segment that I think was supposed to be funny that really wasn't funny. Not that it was offensive, it just wasn't funny. Um. But also, Gargano and Swan are still teaming at this point. Cannon is wrestling Swan later on in the show. Why are Gargano and Cannon just hanging out? If you're gonna, if you insist on doing this, at least have Sammy Callahan be talking to Eric Cannon about it. Yeah, it's just, and it's not the, uh, it, it isn't as egregious as Gabe Corning, Chuck Taylor in the bathroom, <laughs> but it is. One of those things that the bucket cam has had some hits and has had some misses. This definitely is in the miss column. As was the opening match. Yeah, it's so opening match. Eric Cannon versus Rich Swan. Rich Swan won a 450 splash and the standing 450 in 11 minutes and 23 seconds. And just depressing match. Like the, It's just not in, it was not interesting to me. And then you, like, you like start looking around the venue and you're like, oh, there's no one on the hard cam side, so hey, Lenny, how's it going? I see you calling the show, and it just, yeah, yeah, it, it, it is. It, that's the thing. This match isn't even bad. It was just thoroughly uninteresting, and, and I rarely use this term unironically, but it was a match that felt, to an extent, indie-rific, if you will. It, it was just two guys kind of doing stuff and, and nobody really seemed to care. And, you know, at one point, Eric Cannon does a really cool spot where he kind of whips Rich Swan around, at, you know, like a, a 360 and then power bombs him into a set of chairs, which was great. But it was preceded by seven minutes of, of lackluster grappling and who cares wrestling. So it had no effect on the crowd. It just didn't matter. Yeah, no, that hammer throw was the one note that I had here. Like, you'd think that he was trying out for the Olympic team with that, <laughs> with the way he slung around Swan. This is just a giant who care match. Who cares? No one cares. I had it at two and a half. It was, it was, it was there. I, I, I like destruction. So it's two and three quarters, mainly just for that crazy chair spot. Like that, that chair spot was nuts. But one chair spot does not make a good match. It just makes them a boring match slightly less disinteresting. Post-match, Swan grabs the, bi the bad microphone. He says is that Dragon Gate USA is the home of the High Flyer and Cannon and Eric Cannon does not belong. And then he kind of just storms off as Larry Dallas and Trina Michaels were taunting from the ramp. Uh, Eric Cannon challenges and made some very anti-sex worker comments towards Trina Michaels. And then Cannon chases around Larry Dallas behind Trina Michaels and does some very unnice things to Trina Michaels. 
Yeah, it's the way Gabe treats Eric Cannon on this show. You'd think that Ring of Honor was angling to sign him and make him world champion. Or remember Scum or something? He'd make sense in in Scum. Oh, he would have fit in, absolutely. It's just, it's so weird. They bury him in two segments, and then he's back on the Mania Weekend shows. And it's not, like, mean. It's just, like, like, Eric Cannon doesn't need to be belittled like this. Pinky Sanchez just disappeared from shows. Why does Eric Cannon need to be put down on his way out? It's just one of those things, like, you're, like, looking at this, and this is... The, the the clear difference to how Chuck Taylor's 2012 post the Ronan breakup and this here is he he had he had Chuck Taylor in a contract he knew he had to do stuff with Chuck Taylor and just let Chuck Taylor do his own just kind of just whatever thing. However, this is how Gabe buries someone while they're on their way out of the territory, and there's no other way that you could look at that like this than that. To be honest. Yeah, it's it, it's truly bizarre. And then from there you go to a guy in the next match who. I would argue probably should have been on his way out of the territory, but judging from the booking in this match, he is going to be around for a long time. I'm so mad. I'm so (laughs) mad about this case. Um, There was an Evolve 17 video. We're just keeping track of these things. I don't remember when Evolve 17 was, but there was a video for that. Uh, that It was at Flyers Club, so at least was in 2012. John Davis knocks out uh, Drake Younger with a rising knee and a ground and pound. I hate this match, case. It, it, it oh boy, this is, it, it's almost like tough to talk about. First of all, Evolve 17 was in September, so if Gabe had the DVD out by then, more power to him, but I, I, I think That's it was, fast for him. I think it was an iPay-Per-View that they were hyping, not the DVD, or, oh. or there's the fact that this show came out a year after it happened on DVD, so by then I would hope that Evolve 17 was in circulation. So, I'll let you have the floor. What, what did you not like about Davis versus Strike Younger? Well, first and foremost, this match should not be happening. Like, you have John Davis out here only having his arm taped up, and Lenny is trying to get over the fact of what a war he went through last night. I can't believe he's still out here. Look at his arm. And John Davis doesn't do, like, any residual selling of the night before, so it completely negates the uh, finality of that feud if he's able to walk around and beat Drake Younger by a flying knee and then ground and pounds him. And then it's just... it, it. It, the thing itself is like that this match should not have been made and then this match went nine minutes case and it's one of those things that it's like shouldn't this be a, a match that if this match happens which I am vehemently against the fact that John Davis is on this card after that loss shouldn't it have been either Drake Younger somehow like being able to capitalize on the fact that John Davis went to war the night before or something fluky happening and uh, Younger has the moment, but then Davis is able to kind of hit a, like a pop-up strike and get out of there instead of going for nine minutes. I felt like 20. And it just, the match that they could have had, I thought Drake was great. I thought Drake was really strong in this. I think that he, that this is, there's a reason why people speak so highly of Drake Younger's time right before he went to WWE, but this match should not have happened. And I can't even like, get, we're not even getting out of the starting blocks without me having major problems with this. It, it's a bummer because it follows a very similar structure that the the first Drake Younger versus Sammy Callahan match in PWG had, which got them super over in Reseda. But there is a difference between 2012 Reseda and 2013. What is this building? The I, I the Pappy the, Dome? The, the Pappy Pineda Dome. The Pappy Pineda in Dome. Huffington yeah. Park. <laughs> not even, we're not even in Huntington Beach. We're not even near uh, Tito 
for I was just going to ask if Tito was now overseeing this community. <laughs> um, but Let me check about Huntington Park, California. Please right do want to talk about this match, because this is one of those where I, I don't even think structurally they did anything wrong up until the finish, which I, I had major issues with. But it, just don't don't put John Davis on the show. I, I, I don't understand... You know, have Drake versus Famous B. Have Drake versus B-Boy. Use one of the locals from the night before. John Davis needed time away at this point. Gabe needed to use less John Davis. And with that, less would have been more. But shoving him down our throats again was just not the way to rehab John Davis. And it makes... It really makes Johnny Gargano, your champion, who came through this war, look like a kind of a, kind of a dingus for lack of better words. Like, why would you have the guy that he went through a war and he def- he submitted him in a very, or he passed out, I'm sorry, John Davis passed out the night before. Less than 12 hours, or just over 12 hours before this match. And, and, and he's back and he's wrestling Drake and it's just kind of a, a who cares, you know, that this is an undercard match. And, and Davis... Had he just not wrestled here and shown up on Media Weekend, I don't think it, it would have been the worst thing. But also, not only is this match happening, which bothers us, but then you have the finish where John Davis hits like an animated running knee strike that supposedly knocks out Drake Younger and he gets in, you know, he gets on top of Drake and mounts him and hits a forearm to the face, and then the referee stops the match. And it is the first time in 2013 where there is a small enough crowd to where you hear murmuring in the audience of like, what was that? Why did they book that? What is this? It will come up later right. on in 2013 towards the end of the year. One of my favorite Drangate USA moments in history. But now we just have this weird, like John Davis is doing a knockout gimmick now, I guess. Like what? I This sucked. I, I don't think this got over at all. It didn't get over at all. And by the way, Huntington Park to Huntington Beach, hour drive. Hour drive. The Huntington Park is close to Watts in Compton, whereas Huntington Beach is just north of uh, Newport Beach. It's just good to know. Just just for your own, just like Mindscape. It just is something that... And then after the match, Davis does a buckle bomb to the ref and stares. Nothing has changed over the last 24 hours. Like, what would you say... If anything has changed other than John Davis isn't champion. Like, that's the only, like, big difference between how I assume John Davis would have wrestled and has acted in this match versus if he won that match. There's no difference in my mind. No, he's got wrapping on his arm now, which I actually thought kind of made him look tougher, so I didn't hate that. But it's, no, it's it's the same character right now devalued to a greater extent. Yeah, yeah, I just... I went one and one quarter, like... And that's a very big protest of me saying this match probably in PWG would have been awesome, but this is poorly booked. This isn't on Davis other than his lack of selling, and this isn't on on Drake Younger. This match should not have happened, and I can't get beyond that, and that's why I went one and a quarter on it. Yeah, I'm at two and three quarters, but I I, I think your rating is fair. I, I was probably flirting with three stars prior to the finish, which was just completely unacceptable in my view, but, it, you know, the work is strong. It's just... Why are we watching this, you know? Yeah, exactly. Then we go back to the book at Cam, and uh, Brian Kendrick is backstage thanking his students for helping him and saying that he would see them tonight. And Brian Kendrick's just happy to be here. He's excited. And, I mean, he cut a better promo for Dragon Gate USA than John Morrison did on Friday. Oh, absolutely, because I think Kendrick was genuinely excited to be here, whereas Morrison was taking the, you know, taking the paycheck. 
Yep, yep, yep. And then we got into the next match. It was Chuck Taylor defeating Ada with the awful waffle in 12 minutes and 16 seconds. In case I want to, I want to get your thoughts on this first because I thought that this was a pretty interesting match. Well, my biggest takeaway. I don't know if you noticed this. Maybe. Well, let me double check this before I speak on that. But my thoughts on the match. I I don't know. It just it kind of existed. I I was hoping that Southern Luchador Chuck Taylor was going to show a little bit more in this match, but it really felt like an exhibition style of affair. If this had opened up the card and the matches that followed, you know, matches two and three were a little bit better, I perhaps wouldn't have hated this as much. I, I didn't hate it, I, I should say, but I, it was just, I you know, Ata continues to look good, but this wasn't an inspiring performance from either man. Yeah, um... I went three and a quarter on this. I thought this was a good match. I thought that Ada at this point, after this match, I feel like he's done enough that, and we know that he'll be moved up the card. Like this was, this was a match that it's just like, all right, we need to stop having these matches with Ada. He's, we've, we've gotten the point here. He's come across, he's ready for something bigger. And, you know, I I just thought this was just a fun after the last two matches. And maybe this is reflective on how much I hated the fact that the previous match even happened case. I came out of this going like, oh, it's a 12-minute Chuck Taylor-Nada match. It was exactly what I expected. And, you know, it wasn't underwhelming, but it was exhibition-y. I will give you that. Like, it did pretty much have, like, a very, like, breezy opening until Ada did a really gross-looking basement dropkick during Chuck Taylor trying to roll through. But it just was, like, a fun person fun match and you know chuck taylor is a good person a good measuring stick to see if someone's going to work in a context or not and you know both of them kind of checked all the boxes three and a quarter stars yeah i was right at three so i I, i'm not that far off but it was you know a three stars that was just three i think in comparison to the other two lackluster opening matches and and i will have to issue an apology here i had in my notes that Gabe was too lazy to update the nameplates during the entrance from Heat 2012 to Heat 2013, but I did just go back and rewatch this match, and it is just such low definition that the three looks like a two, but it is an updated uh, nameplate with Heat 2013. So my apologies to Gabe for bad-mouthing you in my notes. I mean, you're still having a pay-per-view in 40p. I mean, I'm just going to say that, but... Then uh, after the match, Chuck Taylor grabbed the microphone and said he he is three and zero on the weekend and he thinks he's the one seed in the Evolve tournament. Threw it, threw down the microphone. The first promo I heard that the microphone did not have any issues in. And then we went backstage with the Jimmys, having having native Japanese talent that I know Ryo Saito is not fluent in English whatsoever. But having them on them like cut a promo in Japanese, whereas in the past they would have it all translated and they would have subtitles for this. I mean, this is where this company's at. It really annoyed me. And, and first of all, for the Chuck Taylor promo, it was a good promo, but I yeah. just do not care about this Evolve title. I cannot imagine a less interesting storyline than we want a title to fight for. Not, not that I want to defend my title, but I want this promotion to have a title is something that has not sucked me in during this rewatch. But the Jimmy's promo, it's just laziness. They just had these two guys cut a promo that no one is going to be able to understand, and the fact that they didn't translate it is just pure laziness. And it's like, I picked up, like, I, I, I'm I, nowhere, like, knowledgeable in Japanese where I am towards, like, other languages I do know some of, but I can pick up stuff when people say it. And Susumu was cutting a promo on Sammy Callahan. So, like, that seems like someone that Sammy Callahan, he's a guy that you have under contract, wouldn't you want to make sure that building up this match that you would have 
a translated promo here for this. Like, that's the thing. It, it's so lazy at this point. Or just to show off that you have this Japanese talent that is supposed to get over with an American audience. It, 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 this segment really annoyed me, actually. Yeah, no. And then we went into our next match. It is for the Open the Freedom Gate Championship. So Gabe, yet again, doing the uh, title in the and what would have been like the intermission match. Johnny Gargano defeating Brian Kendrick with the Gargano escape in 19 minutes and 58 seconds. When was the other time the Freedom Gate was in this position? Oh, the BB Hulk running. Oh, that, yes, that's right. Um, that, 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 yes, that feels like ages ago. A, a, a long ways away from Brian Kendrick versus Johnny Gargano. Mike, you threw it to me for the last match first. I want to hear your thoughts on this before I give mine. So, I, I can recognize that this match was proficient. And I could recognize that I liked Brian Kendrick's character throughout the last two shows where he's kind of playing the heel version of the uh, Cruiserweight Classic uh, veteran that he would play a couple of years later when he got back into WWE for good. And Gargano is selling into it. And he's doing a, and he's doing a, like, a sufficient job. But it was just like one of those things that just felt like that this was a weak defense. It made sense on paper. made sense like these are names that you would have. And when, when Gargano started revving up and got into the finish and then you had like this... The, the conversion of the splice spread and into the ref bump and then the finish. I just kind of went three and a quarter stars. It was fine. I mean, Gargano, I think the one person that when this rewatch, I know for you at least, Gargano is just at this point not the person ready to be like the entering ace that I think Gabe desperately needed out of him. The problem with this match is that the audience that it is designed for is not the audience that is watching Dragon Gate USA. If I threw this match to the Sekunda Keita guys, they would probably love it. It would probably hit their match the year list. This is like an old school world title defense where Kendrick weasels his way as the match goes along into being a legitimately credible contender for this title. Mike, I bit on a Brian Kendrick near fall and I obviously know Brian Kendrick was not open the Freedom Gate champion, but it was such a slow and deliberate style of match that by the end, it was really efficient. I was really into the Brian Kendrick story. I was into his character, and I, I, and I thought it was well done. It was a really smart match that I think if it happens, I mean, God forbid this match happens in CWF Mid-Atlantic, then we'd never hear the end of it. But if it happened in another promotion... I, I think people would be really into it, and I think the crowd would respond to it better than this crowd did because we hear all about in the opener how Dragon Gate USA is the home of the high flyers, and then you have Brian Kendrick essentially working a, a, a territory challenge against Johnny Gargano. So for as much as I liked this match, and I went three and a half on it, it was it, it was this weird paradox of it's incredibly flawed, but it is also so well done, and it feels like it's really the the entire career of Brian Kendrick summed up into a match where he's doing the right thing at the wrong time. And I, I don't know how to rate that. I really had to sit with the star rating for a minute because the work in this match was really, really solid, much better than I thought we'd get because 2013 Brian Kendrick is certainly post-prime Brian Kendrick. But this match had moments where it was legitimately great. The final two minutes of this match are thrilling, it just takes a little bit to get there. No, that's entirely fair. And it really is something where you can see this is a match that 
there's a reason why I said it, it reminded me of 2016 because you could kind of see some of the pieces being put in his head of, oh, I'm past my peak, but I'm still smarter than you, and that's how I'm get my way out of it. And I, I do think that this is like, put this match in 2011 on in Burlington, North Carolina at CWF's arena, and we saw how that crowd reacted to Nuruki Doi versus John Moxley. Imagine them having this match there. Like, you're absolutely right about this. Like, it's just one of those things that it's put in a building where it was not going to prosper. Yeah, on a promotion where it seems to reject the idea of this match entirely, it's just the wrong audience for it. But it's okay, because I, I, I really, you know, in a vacuum, enjoyed this match. No, 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 I think you're entirely fair with that. And I think that's, uh, I, th- I think that th- that's on point as an assessment. And then, you know, right after that, uh, Johnny Gargano grabbed the microphone and he was talking about how he's cementing his legacy now as champion. And he's putting out a open contract to Japan that anyone in Dragon Gate bring over your biggest guy to come over and try to take this belt from me because I am Dragon Gate USA and I am the Freedom Gate champion. And I think this might have been to this point, Johnny Gargano's best promo of his career. The promo after he won the title at Freedom Fight 2011 is ridiculous. I love that promo so much because I am at that point ready to crawl on my hands and knees to the Northeast to to be Johnny Gargano's second in these Freedom Gate defenses. This was another very strong one as well. Yeah, and nice little seed planted here, you know, especially considering what's going to happen the next weekend. Like... Makes sense that he cut promo like this. Yeah, yeah. And then made I have no challenge. issue with this segment. I, you know, because I think there's an argument to be made that you gave doing another open contract could be a, a little bit lazy because I think that's a, a a device that Gabe can perhaps rely on too much. But knowing what's to come, I don't have an issue with it. Oh, I'm totally with you with that. And then, and then we we get to a match. It is Samurai Del Sol defeating Rio Saito with an. Evelyn Strana, Dragon Rana. That's a terrible way of doing this. He basically did a Casadora off the top rope, <laughs> a Casadora bomb, in nine minutes and twenty four seconds. And ah, man, some matches you you might think, oh, these two guys will have a great match. No, no, no. no this was the weakest Del Sol performance since his debut against Masato Yoshino, and and we spent the last two shows talking about, well, you know, I wonder what would happen if Samurai Del Sol would have gone to Japan and. Unfortunately, the Saito match and the Yoshino match, I don't know if they had any real-life ramifications on it, but I am now quickly backing away from that theory. No, I, you're, you're dead on about that. It's just, the one thing I'll say is that at least it was nine minutes. At least they I, I it guess. didn't overstay it, its welcome. It, it felt like 19. <laughs> you, you, you see, I went two and a quarter on this thing, like... What was your starting? Because I feel like that, like, I did not like this match. I recognize what it was, but it seems like you are much lower on this than I am. It's funny. I'm actually at two and three quarters. It was, you know, (laughs) I guess in my mind, well, part of it was I was thinking during this match, I was like, God, I would have liked to have seen Susumi Okoska versus Samurai Del Sol more. I think that would have been a far more interesting match, but it was just one of those where it's tough saying none of the work was bad because I do think there are a lot of spots that were sloppy. It was just an unengaging match. It, it felt like it belonged with Chuck Taylor and Ato, where it's like, well, I see what you're trying to do, but none of this is over. The crowd doesn't really seem to care. And 
for whatever reason, bringing Saito over instead of a Horiguchi or just literally anyone else on the roster, Saito just doesn't connect with American audiences. And I think Del Sol really needs to have that that connection with the crowd and that deep underdog babyface status. And this match lacked that, much like the Yoshino match lacked that. And I think mm-hmm. we have now seen the result when Del Sol is not positioned in a, in a chance where he has to where he has the position to play more of a character. No, I'm with you. And just like looking at the people here, we talked earlier about like what you do with the card and what, especially with AR Fox in the main event. Maybe this is something that you have Samurai Del Sol versus Ada. Like maybe that's the idea there. Cause then you have like, this is the high flyer versus the up and comer. And then if Chuck Taylor can't get a, a comedy match out of Rio Saito, that makes an American crowd a laugh. Then what are we doing here? Yes. I would firmly support that. I, with the exception of the fact that Del Sol wrestled Ata two shows ago, although they could have just done a rematch. Oh God, that's my memory right there. God, it, it, it feels like that those two shows, even though this was two nights before, and I like that match too. Yeah, that was a like good opener. Match. But it, it, it's it's funny. Something about running this building a second night makes the open the Golden Gate show seem like it was ages ago. Yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm with you with that there. Uh, Samurai post match cut a promo in Spanish. Not only was it just like you couldn't hear anything because of the microphone it just kind of he kind of went on like saying like i'm ready for my next challenge and then then john davis comes out and immediately murders him and we go to the book at camp you know let's talk about the book at camp i don't want to talk about john davis right now i'm very upset about yep. it chuck and drake are backstage or post-show drake is just happy he's like hey i lost my match but i gotta break a chair that was neat and then chuck is just mad at gabe because he's not calling him the number one seed then Gabe is like, well, I can't officially say that, Chuck, but I do believe that when we get back to the office, we'll have a conversation, and I have to say that you are favored at this point. And then uh, Drake says, hey, I've only had one loss in Evolve. Maybe we should face off there. And they kind of have like a little like pleasant laugh, and it's just like, hey, hanging out with Chuck and Drake. I will say, for as much as I hated the opening book at Cam, I really, really enjoyed this one, because at one point when Chuck is upset that he's not the number one seed, he goes, who are you going to give it to flip Kendrick? And that made me lose my mind. And Drake and Chuck had this conversation where Drake says, well, you know, I've only got one loss in Evolve. Maybe I should get in there, which also made me laugh. And then Chuck and Drake talk about how uh, they don't think Drake has ever beaten Chuck, but thanks to the lovely cage match, I can confirm that on July 12th, 2006 in Evansville, Indiana, Coliseum Championship Wrestling, Drake Younger did indeed defeat Chuck Taylor. And because it pertains to Dragon Gate, I'll also let you know that a man named OMG defeated Ricochet and Cannonball (laughs) Sammy Callahan defeated Dr. Bones. And just because it's fun, Mike, the main event of this show, a man by the name of Muhammad Allah Dupe with Osama Bin Pimpin, defeated diehard Dustin Lee in the main event. You, you know, the OMG name did not like throw me off. I'm like, no, that makes sense given the Midwest that time, but Osama, <laughs> Osama ben, run that by me again. Osama Ben Pimpin. <laughs> Osama Ben Pimpin. And I'm assuming it's B-I-N, not B-E-N. That right? is correct. But... <laughs> Tooth... <laughs> 2006 it, it, was a better time man i know like the economy was on the verge of collapsing but take me back to 2006 <laughs> I, I i mean case i i will not too far off than right now 
Are you seeing some parallels between modern life and 15 years ago as if nobody learned from the mistakes of merely a generation prior? <laughs> yeah. 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 L- let's talk about something that doesn't make me existentially sad. Let's do uh, it. Sammy Callahan defeated Susumu. Uh, I almost called him Susumu Yokosuka there. Jimmy Susumu with the uh, Tiger Driver into a stretch muffler in 15 minutes and 35 seconds in case... We got to see the reemergence of one of your favorite things, white trash MMA, Sammy Callahan. Uh, this match was incredible. This was the shot in the arm this show desperately needed. And it, it's funny that you mentioned Sammy because my takeaway from this match was just how good Susumu Yokosuka is that he can adapt to another setting, to another opponent in another environment and come away with a match that I gave four stars to. I absolutely, I was four and a quarter. I love this match. If you're someone who is participating in the greatest wrestler ever 2021 thing, and you're trying to figure out, oh, some Dragon Gate, Dragon System people, you need to start considering Susumi Akoska. You need to start hunting down his Dragon Gate UK and his Dragon Gate USA stuff because this guy has these matches where he adapts and he plays into his wrestler strengths, which it makes sense that you picked up more on the Susumu thing because I was like, wow, Sammy looks like an absolute monster here. And who's in the ring with him? It's Susumu Yokosuka, one of the best wrestlers of this generation. And just was great. It had a blistering pace to start, and it rocked. And then this really sick counter when a, when uh, Sammy Callahan was really rolling and was starting to do his running big boots, that Susumu just fired up and cracked his foot with a Jimbo no Kachi that had me scream in my couch. Just like a hidden belter on this show. Really excellent stuff, and what this show desperately needed at this time. This is the Dragon Gate USA that I love to watch. I love seeing Susumu take on Americans and just completely make everyone in the match come off like a gosh darn star case. Well, yeah, this is literally what the promotion was born off of and and should have been. It was a, a terrific display of wrestling and so, so aggressive. I mean, that's the thing. You know, Susumu... I think at his worst, which is very few and far between, it's not like Yokosuka has a lot of bad matches, but but when he's off, it's because he's a little bit tentative and a little bit subdued in the ring, and he certainly did not let that happen here because he was so aggressive and so just on the prowl, for lack of a better term, with Sammy Callahan. This was a, this was a brilliant match. And again, four stars from me and everything that Dragon USA should have been. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This is taking it back. You know how in CCW they talk about taking it back to 1999? Constantly. This is taking it back to 2009. Oh, God, this would have fit in on Open the Freedom Gate in Philly or whatever the third show was. I mean, this was the the blueprint for the promotion, and this is what I really miss around this time in the promotion. I mean, it's this was a, this was a pleasant gem, a needed pleasant gem on this show. And then we had the main event. It was the Young Bucks against Akira Tozawa and A.R. Fox. It's going to take me a second to kind of explain the finish case here, but it was Fox and Tozawa winning after Fox and Matt Jackson brawl to the back and it breaks down. So you had about two minutes of just Nick Jackson and Akira Tozawa in the ring. Eventually, Akira Tozawa got him with the captured German suplex in 20 minutes and 23 seconds. And, you know, for a team that was thrown together, I sure as heck like Tozawa and A.R. Fox. Mike, we have officially hit hidden gem territory with this match. This is the type of stuff that is lost due to time 
and simply the fact that you know nobody watched Heat 2013 in the first place. But when we're compiling the the essential viewing list of Drangit USA when we're done with this project, this match has to be included because this is my favorite era of the Young Bucks, like I talked about last week, against Akira Tozawa in an AR Fox who was, you know, completely unafraid. And Fox, this is, I believe, his first time in the ring with the Young Bucks because he hasn't debuted in PWG at this point. He debuts in March of 2013 and then goes on to have an insane match with the Young Bucks in June of 2013. So he's a guy that always worked well with the Bucks, which makes sense just given their in-ring styles. And then you throw Tozawa in the mix. These last two matches are everything that Drangate USA should have been. And it's a shame that we didn't get more of this. Yeah, yeah. And it's something where it took a while, I feel like, for Air Fox really to bloom in this promotion. Like, it was clear that Gabe found someone that... The, the one thing I'll never doubt Gabe Sapolsky is he's able to identify people who will be stars. Sometimes they take a little bit longer, and sometimes it takes different places, but he finds people who would be stars. And A.R. Fox was the person that he came in on a hot tag after Tazawa was selling for like the first four or five minutes, and it felt like it was almost like a territory studio show in a way, the way that he was like firing up and how awesome it looked. And, you know, this is the Bucks playing kind of like their preview for how their characters would change over the next three years, and... You have Akira Tozawa, and I mean, Akira Tozawa, one of my favorite wrestlers, my favorite wrestler of all time, just out there and having such chemistry with the Bucks, and it just makes me kind of like going, man, there could have been the universe where this match was happening all the time, and it just absolutely owned, and there was like this, a lot of like really interesting reversals out of the little main pain as well. Oh my god, I mean, th- this match was so creative, and even the way that it broke down at the end with Fox and Matt Jackson essentially removing themselves from the match, which... You know, I don't necessarily agree with this theory that Nick Jackson is such a much better wrestler than Matt Jackson is. I really think they're kind of even because they do things, they're different wrestlers, and I think they're they're ter- terrific with what they do. But if you're a Nick Jackson fan specifically, watch the last two minutes of this match with Akira Tozawa because the... The interactions between those two, which is built like it's a singles match, are are unbelievable. This this whole thing just works on a number of levels. I went four and a half stars with it. This is a hidden gem in Drangate USA. And the last two matches really make this show worth it because the undercard was really, really rough. Yeah, no, I mean, both of these matches I was four and a quarter on, you know, something that... Really, looking at this first weekend in 2013 case, we had the uh, uh, we had Revolt 2013, which we're divergent on because I'm never going to be as into the no ropes match as you are. But I had one four star match with Tozawa versus Sam McCallahan, at least in my opinion. And then you look at the other show, then it was the Bucks versus DUF with the best match there, and then and then uh, Susumu and uh, Rio Saito versus uh, former Ronin. And you like look at this like weekend and kind of like an overall thing that i'm noticing is the logistics and the necessity of running multiple times to try to make back money that you're losing on plane tickets and you like really look at it and it's like i think it was an active detriment to the ring quality because i look at like these three shows case and you have probably two absolutely like belters of shows here and instead you have a show that's saved by the semi-main event the main event a, a show the night before that that really kind of kicks off at one point but before that was just kind of middling in there and then just the really weird open the golden gate show like this this could have been like a 
they this could have been like a Friday Saturday doubleheader, and I feel like that'd have been in much better position at least card quality wise. The unfortunate thing is, even with the great last two matches on this show, Heat twenty thirteen is entirely unnecessary because nothing they do pertains to the storylines. It's Tozawa and Fox as a one-time team. It's Susumu versus Callahan in a match that doesn't have any storyline implications. Brian Kendrick versus Johnny Gargano, it's a great B-tier title defense, but it's not anything that people remember when they think about Johnny Gargano's Open the Freedom Gate run, so that really isn't consequential, and they could have gone from Gargano versus Davis straight into Gargano versus Shingo, without this match and everything would have been the same. So yeah, you're looking at a a weekend where you have really one and a half to, if you're being generous, two good shows on paper. And then this third show, which was just entirely unnecessary. Yeah. And it's one of those things that, you know, you, you notice that when we did the estate of Dragon Gate USA two weeks ago case, he talked about venues. He talked about, he, he talked a little bit about uh, the uh, the gates, but he didn't really talk about the fact of what he was re- originally pretty open about the break-even point of, okay, we originally need 700 tickets in 2009. Then it was basically if we get 1,000 across a weekend, they maybe hit half of that this weekend. And this is after they pretty much, the year before this, they only flew out to L.A. because it seemed like that was a sold show. So... Yeah, it's, it's I, I'd probably give them 300 for the show with Morrison unless you have the concrete numbers. Just from what I remember, there's probably about 300 people there. And then if you're really generous, I think you give them 200 for the two nights in the in Huntington Park combined. So, yeah, you're looking at about 500 people maybe for three sets of shows. It's something where it's just, you know, we look at this and... It, it it's very clear that this promotion is in its death spiral at this point. And luckily, we do have probably the last great weekend of the promotion. Coming up ahead, uh, the, post, the post-match before we move on, uh, Tozawa gets a solo mic. Tozawa, incredible mic worker. You can just, like, even, like, this crowd of 50 to 60 people were in the palm of his hand chanting, I love you, back at him. Then he called out, Air Fox, and he asked, like, Where, where'd you go? It's like, oh, we were fighting in, all the way in the back, man. Like, didn't you notice that? He's like, no, you're not here now. And then they did a bunch of hugs, and then they did the Darren Gate USA call, and we fade to black. Fun. It, it, it's something that, like, if this was, like, a one-hour TV show of Callahan and Susumu verse, and then Fox and Tozawa ending with that, I'd be like, oh, right, that was an awesome hour TV, but had another full hour and a half before that. Unfortunately, we did, but we end on a high note, and we will transition into a sustained high note next week. Open the Ultimate Gate 2013 from WrestleCon in Secaucus, New Jersey. Mike, let me run down this full card for you real quick. It is Brian Kendrick versus Rich Swan, A six-way freestyle with Eric Cannon, Jigsaw, Fire Ant, Chuck Taylor, Anthony Nice, and Shane Strickland. Scott Reed versus Derek Rise. John Davis versus the debuting Trent Beretta. Ada and his secret weapon, Tomahawk TT, against the Super Smash Brothers. Akira Tozawa versus Ricochet. Sammy Callahan versus the returning Uha Nation. The United Gate belts are on the line as AR Fox and Shima defend against the Young Bucks. In your main event, open the Freedom Gate title, Johnny Gargano versus Shingo Takagi. This show, and knowing how many times I've watched it, I'm stoked to get into it for next week. 
I think that this is a real interesting high point, and there's going to be a lot of just interesting things happening around Secaucus, New Jersey this weekend, Case. I'm really stoked to getting into it. But with this show done, Case, we are now going to be entering the final 10 shows of Dragon Gate USA. It's a beautiful thing to think about. I am genuinely excited to rewatch Open the Ultimate Gate 2013. I'm excited to talk about WrestleCon and Ring of Honor and the disaster that was next week as well. And there's nothing I want to do more right now than sit down and watch Ata versus Tomahawk, Ata and Tomahawk TT versus the Super Smash Brothers, AR Fox and Shima versus the Young Bucks, and Johnny Gargano versus Shingo. I mean, it's a be- and then we get Uha Nation back. Like this is the show that the more I'm looking at this card gaze, the more I'm kind of like. All right, Uha's back. Tozawa versus Ricochet, that's a big match. And then, you know, the debut of Trent, that, that, that's that's noteworthy. And, you know, after this, like, kind of this show where we're both like, it's too bad those that there was a, a pretty bad hour and a half because the last hour of the show was great. I'm looking at this show, and there's not a whole lot here that I feel like I can be disappointed by from my memory. No, I, I love this show. I am prepared if need be, to have some hot takes about this show towards the end of it, if, if everything holds up the way I remember it holding up. So I am pumped for this. Yep, so am I. Okay, so anything else you want to hit on before we get out of here? I think that's it. All right, so you can follow us on Twitter at OpenVoiceGate. You can follow Case at underscore in your case. You can follow me at Fujiheya. That's it for this time at Open the Voice Gate. Rewind, rewatch. We'll catch you next time for WrestleMania Weekend 2013.